What has roots as nobody sees, as taller than trees? Up, up it goes, and yet never grows. J.R.R. Tolkien Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I hope you enjoy this week's episode, and that you have enjoyed any prior episodes you've listened to. And if this is your first episode, please, uh, I hope you will continue to listen and subscribe and enjoy and all that good stuff. Um, now, before we continue our talks about Neolithic sites in India, I had a listener question about our episode a couple of weeks ago. Or rather, a question about a feature of Marigar that I didn't uh, talk about. Now, I had talked about how some of the facts or features of Marigar uh, were, pre- were poorly sourced, um, like the thing about the population being 25,000. <laughs> Excuse me. And how um, that made it hard to kind of pin down uh, dates when specific features arose. A listener asked me about the beginnings of cotton use happening in Marigar, and that is indeed one of the many prominent features of the site. And I'll be going into more detail on uh, our next crop domestication episode. But evidence of deliberate cotton cultivation does not appear in the archaeological record until around 500 years after our current focus ends. And it isn't a major uh, cultivar in the region until about 5000 BC at the earliest. Now, I have no doubt that they were using like wild strains of the tree well before then and during our current time frame, similar to how flax was used in the Caucasus and uh, other areas, um, but uh, not at a level that has really merited discussion just yet. Um, Now, I'll also go ahead and give a little bit more of a, I guess, a preview on the next domestication episode, but at around exactly the same time as Marigar, uh, somewhere in what is, I believe it's modern Peru, Uh, The people living there begin to domesticate their local version of cotton. Um, So I I would like to thank uh, the listener for the question. uh, And I hope you all will continue to listen and get to that uh, next domestication episodes for both plants and animals. Um, And the, yes, so uh, one thing I should go ahead and say, a lot of the early cotton grown in India and Pakistan is um, from the cotton tree, whereas uh, places uh, further, um, or places in the New World and uh, Africa and other places use the uh, the cotton plant. Um, but that that's way in the future, and again, we'll get to that uh, later. Now, um, at the end of our last episode, um, I was still debating which area of the Indian subcontinent to focus on next. And I decided that we will start with the southern uh, part. And then, um, because it's it's not like we, there's a lot of stuff to talk about there, but it's not a lot in relation to people. So I figured we, we kind of go south as far as we can and then turn up. Um and depending on how long this takes, we might start that this episode and finish it next week or just do it all, um, you know, 
this week and then move on to our next part next week. Um, though I might be able to stretch it a little longer. We'll see. Um, before that, though, I do need to talk about um, some of the major geographic features inside uh, the subcontinent and how that influenced um, movement, travel, trade, settlement, all that, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and the first feature is the Great Indian Desert, or the Thar Desert, um, which, if you're looking for a decent um, neo-Western uh, uh, movie, um, I recommend the movie Thar. It is a, it is made in India. Um, I think you can still watch it on Netflix. If you have a VPN, you can definitely watch it there. Um, it's a, its primary language is Hindi, but there are English subtitles available. Uh, at least when I watched it, <clears throat> and it's set in the in this desert region during the 1980s. Uh, now, this desert probably didn't exist at our time period, um, or I'm sorry, uh, I think this desert did probably exist, but there are those that say it didn't exist at all. Um, but if it did, which I, I again I think it did, uh, it wasn't nearly as large as it is today. And while this area is a desert, it is the most populated desert in the world as it does have numerous um, kind of small natural uh, water sources. Um, and there are also some that have been man-made. Essentially, there are kind of these rocky areas that kind of form um, ponds and streams uh, during the very limited amount of rainfall that they do get seasonally. Excuse me. Um, now, uh, you could uh, travel through this region, or you can go around it to the north or to the south. Also, uh, the origin of the name isn't 100% certain, but from what I gather, it comes from Thahul, uh, which means something like Ridge of Sand, in a couple of the local languages. Um, but uh, walking directly through this region gets you to the Aravalli Hills. Now, if instead of going through this drier central region, you followed along uh, the Shivalik foothills, you would be in a much more temperate and fertile region, you know, filled with lakes, streams, rivers, and ponds. Uh, this would probably be a much easier route to travel through, but also much more... Um, I guess crowded, you would say. Uh, I imagine um, you would be more likely to run into neighbors or possibly have to worry about defending yourselves from other humans, uh, not to mention wild animals. And now, you can follow this path uh, to the east to reach the Ganges River Basin, uh, but this week instead we will be taking, uh, I'm sorry, we'll be talking about the people who lived to the south uh, after essentially going around the Aravalli Hills to the north. Now, the Aravalli Hills kind of terminate around 80 or so miles, or, which is around 130 kilometers, uh, to the southwest of what is modern-day New Delhi. Uh, so there is a very, you know, flat or relatively flat uh, area to live in uh, between the Aravalli Hills and the uh, Shivalik uh, foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, now the Aravalli hills are an, are an ancient 
worn down mountain range that is, and in fact they're possibly the oldest extant mountain range in the world uh, they formed sometime during the Proterozoic uh, and that's not the Protozoic but the Proterozoic uh, which means uh, they are somewhere between 2,500 million years and 540 million years uh, old now the name derives from Sanskrit, uh, with, or the Sanskrit words "ara" and "vali," which combined together kind of translates into something like a uh, a forest of peaks. Now, if you went uh, instead of going around to the north uh, or going through the Thar region, uh, you went to the south of the Thar and the Aravali. Or, if you were just following the coast from where the Indus feeds into the ocean, uh, you would run into what today is called the Ron of Koch. Now, Ron is the Hindi word for desert, and Kutch is derived from the Sanskrit word for tortoise or turtle, uh, Kachhapa. Supposedly, this name comes from the fact that on maps... Uh, this little region looks like it's a turtle kind of flipped onto its back. And I, could, I can see that resemblance. I could see people making that kind of connection. But how true it is, I can't say. I couldn't find too many for, firm sources on that. Uh, it was cited on several websites, including Wikipedia, which is always dangerous. Um, but, you know, uh, I wonder how many of those websites were using Wikipedia as a set primary source. Uh, that is one of those things you have to be careful about. Uh, now, due to factors that happened much later, um, this area today is a salty marshland for a quarter of the year. And the rest, it's a dry, white desert. And it provides, like, I believe around 75% of all of India's salt production. Uh, it's also home to several wildlife preserves. At our current time frame, though, of uh, 8,000 to 6,000 BC, the region is still reliant on seasonal river flooding and um, rain. Uh, but the region is probably fairly fertile the rest of the, you know, uh, of the time, and it's easier to get through um, with a small inland sea possibly helping migration and travel. Uh, this region will be the site of several sizable Indus Valley sites. Um, however, you get through or around the hills to their south, uh, you would reach the tropics, and the plant life becomes much different from the places we have talked about the last couple episodes and this area we're in now. Um, which, uh, with the exception of uh, the rivers, uh, and their surrounding areas, a lot of the um, plant life is closer to grass and shrublands. Uh, in fact, a popular theory about why the Indian subcontinent was so popular during the first few waves of Homo sapien migration out of Africa was that much of the subcontinent was closer to uh, the savannas of Africa. Now, as different climate events, uh, climate events happened, uh, including the Younger Dryas, the forest in India expanded, similar to how uh, the Congo rainforest has several times in prehistory uh, expanded and contracted. 
Now, what this means is that these forests occur in climates that are warm year-round, and they usually receive hundreds of centimeters of rain per year, but they have very long dry seasons that last for months at a time. And there may be sections or ranges of the forest that don't see equal amounts of rainfall year to year. Uh, there may be some sections that could, you know, not see rain for 90% of the year or more. So um, these seasonal droughts have a great impact on, you know, everything living in the forest. And this could have led to a migration out of this uh, kind of subregion, or would have led to any remaining humans in the area having to make adjustments to their lifestyle. Though I don't think that this was necessarily too difficult, as the expanse of the forest would be, uh, you know, slow enough, and any people living in the region probably migrated between the mountains, woods, and their borderlands regularly. However, whatever changes in the environment had on the people's living and traveling through the region, uh, it also had an effect on archaeological studies of um, the country, and I'll dive more into that part later. Uh, now, the lands past the Aravalli and going south are hilly and marked by rivers and lakes formed by water flowing down from the Aravalli and, uh, of course, seasonal rains. Now, as you head farther south, you run into another mountain range known as the Vindhyachal, or the Vindhyas. Uh, the most common etymological breakdown of this range is that it comes from the Sanskrit Vanda, which means obstructor, and the next most popular theory is that it is Vindhya, which is the Sanskrit word for hunter. Now, I can hear you ask the same thing I asked. Why is this debated? Vindhya is literally the same word as hunter, and they use the exact same characters. Well, after reading into the subject and uh, checking out uh, the Sanskrit to English dictionary uh, and a couple other sites, it's very possible that this is kind of a chicken and an egg scenario. Uh, these mountains are kind of the traditional border between northern and southern India. Um, the oldest mythological stories say the Vindhya uh, were so tall that they blocked the sun from rising in the past, hence the term obstructors. Now, there are at least 20 different words for hunter in Sanskrit, and they're not all overtly related to each other. Uh, for example, there's Javan, uh, Tivara, and Kulika. Uh, some have overt differences in their meaning, and some have more subtle differences. Uh, to illustrate this, uh, kulika is also a bird, so to use this you know, in terms of hunting means uh, it's a hunting bird, like a hawk or an eagle. Or that the hunter is like a hawk or an eagle, whereas uh, zvahan is hunting with dogs or using a dog to deliver the killing blow. Uh, Vindaya was used to either represent a group of hunters or people specifically from this region, uh, which, you know, uh, in fact, uh, there are still areas around these mountains that, um, you know, are made, or the people living in these mountains are descended from 
the tribal groups, the hunting and gathering groups described by the term. Uh, in some areas, they make up as much as 80% of the modern population. So um, the Vindaya region is, you know, also fairly disconnected uh, and has uh, kind of large gaps between peaks. So, um, you know, there are, you know, there are places you can kind of lose yourself in uh, and kind of uh, live out in the wilderness without having to worry about, um, you know, uh, things like uh, sedentarism, agriculture, things like that. Now, uh, historical sources will also include other uh, neighboring ranges as part of the Vendaya, though our modern understanding of tectonics and orogeny sees us classify things differently. Um, south of the primary run of the Vendaya range is the Narmada River Basin. Narmada is Sanskrit for the giver of pleasure. Uh, this is another one of those important rivers in Hindu mythology uh, that we will again, cover more at a future date, but um, it's also one of the big rivers that has been personified uh, uh, very similarly to how the Sarasvati River was as well. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I lost my place in my notes here. Uh, so, uh, as you move across the Narmada River to the south, uh, the elevation rises and you run into what is today known as the Satpura Range. Uh, this is one of those ranges that were historically considered as part of the greater Vindaya range. Now, I couldn't get a firm source for the etymology of this range, but it seems to be related to the Sanskrit word uh, Satparasa, which is a, a wise or outstanding man. Uh, now, that you know, um, rise in elevation uh, that was beginning as you cross the southern uh, bank of the Narmada is the beginning of a region known as the Deccan Plateau. This is a massive, kind of rocky, triangular-esque plateau that makes up uh, most of the tip of southern India, and uh, that is surrounded on its three sides by different ranges. Uh, the, to the north, we have, of course, the Vindaya and Satpura, which we've already discussed. Uh, to the plateau's west, running from the north. Uh, at the mouth of where the Tapi River enters into the Arabian Sea, um, which runs east to west parallel to the Satpur Range, we have the Western Ghats. These run almost to the very tip of the subcontinent. Where the Western Ghats end in the south, they meet another range that runs south to north along the eastern coast of the subcontinent. These are known as the Eastern Gats. Uh, now, these ranges do have some other names, but um, we'll just refer to them as the Gats or Gats for now. Um, what those are, or what the etymological breakdown of that is, uh, is that many of the um, the Dravidian uh, or Dravidic languages uh, have a word that's very similar to Gat uh, or Gats. Uh, and it essentially just means hill or mountain or, you know, kind of stepped uh, platforms. So uh, it's used in, I think, most of the major southern Dravidic languages, uh, Tamil, uh, uh, Tulagu, or I'm sorry, Tulu, not Tulagu, um, and then uh, Kana, 
Kanata, uh, I believe, is the other uh, big one that uses a version of Got or Gat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, now the Deccan Plateau that you know these um, that these ranges surround. Uh, this is uh, it's very rocky, but it is also covered by a lot of um, uh, vegetation. Um, its elevation kind of varies in places. Uh, some places it's uh, can be as much as uh, a thousand meters uh, above uh, sea level, uh, which is around three thousand two hundred and eighty feet, um, give or take. Uh, but I think on average, it's around I believe it's six hundred meters. Uh, which is around 2,000 feet. Uh, but again, there are some places where it can be as low as uh, a thousand, or I'm sorry, a lo as low as 100 meters. Now, because of the way the Indian plate has kind of uh, shifted or hit the Asian plate at a kind of a little bit of a tilt, um, most of the rivers uh, in the region flow from west to east. Uh, I think there's one or two on the far end of the western Ghats um, that do flow uh, to the um, uh, do flow to the west, uh, but those are again very small. Most of them will flow uh, across uh, the entirety of the southern half of the continent. Now. Um, As we have talked about in a couple of other episodes, uh, the sea level was lower up until fairly recently. In fact, in some places it still may be a little bit lower. So it's possible that um, there was a little bit more livable space uh, between the uh, western end of the western Ghats and the sea. Uh, and possibly due to, again, the end of the Younger Dryas that that has begun to change. Um, there are some islands to the um, west of India, uh, the Laksh, uh, I believe they're the uh, Lakshwadweep Islands, um, and I will talk about them uh, probably in the next episode. I'm, I'm probably going to include them with talking about Sri Lanka, um, but that, yeah, we'll, we'll hold off on those for now. Now, uh, the Deccan Plateau, again, is a little bit different from uh, even, you know, slightly to the north around the Narmada and the Vindayas or the area between the Vindayas and the Aravalli. Um, there are places that are very dry or have very kind of rough, kind of clay, rocky soil. Um, but there are places that have, you know, very dark, black, loamy soil due to a couple of different factors. Um, most of the major um, archaeological sites in the region are on the plateau along those rivers flowing out to the eastern Ghats. Um, but these sites are not really excavated, uh, or at least... They're excavated, but there's nothing that can be really dated solidly to our current time period. Um, what I think this means is that 
uh, if people are living there, they are probably not having, or, you know, they're not at the point where they're having to kind of shift to this agricultural sedentary lifestyle. Um, it's very possible that, you know, they are able to, you know, live very comfortably uh, in these uh, plateaus and foothill areas um, without having to change too much. It's also possible that uh, the area is just not really occupied all that much. Uh, it's very possible that um, large-scale human migration to the area doesn't happen until later. Uh, we might just have a few isolated bands of humans in this region. Um, but uh, in the next two or 3,000 years, uh, that is going to change. You'll see some um, more uh, steady, or I'm sorry, uh, regular um, agricultural sedentary sites in the Deccan. And these will begin to increase, um, you know, slowly over time. Now, so far as we know, um, these will not really coalesce into um, big societies until much later. Um, but it is something that the number is ever increasing uh, as time goes on. Now, it's also possible that there are early sedentary sites to this time period, uh, but they just haven't been found yet. Um, southern India has not had quite the same level of excavation and, um, I guess, study that the northern area has. Um, that's because, you know, this area might not seem like a likely candidate for early civilizations the same way like um, the Tigris and Euphrates uh, societies came up around uh, those uh, the Nile of course being a source for Egyptian civilization and the Indus uh, River uh, as a site for uh, the Indus River society or the Harappan society as some places call it um, so it's very possible that there's just they haven't excavated the right places. They haven't found any earlier evidence. It would not surprise me if there's a whole group or number of sites that kind of show, uh, you know, early human habitation. Um, or at least regular human habitation. Um, so it's, it's possible that this is something that doesn't come about until, um, again, those later periods. Um, but I think the people living here were definitely involved with trade to places to the north. Um, there's a lot of precious uh, stones and uh, minerals in this area that would have been very appealing to people living further to the north. Uh, and it's not hard to see that um, people living in this region have a lot to offer in terms of trade to people living in the north. And trade with this region is going to be vital to the health of um, the northern, I guess, societies uh, in the future. Uh, and there's always going to be kind of this, I wouldn't say, uh, I wouldn't say, 
rivalry, but there's always a kind of dependence on the two regions with each other. And it's 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 a dependency that uh, depending on the time frame, one group may desire a little bit more control over the other at separate times. It's a it's a very delicate situation uh, from what I can tell from some of the sources. And there's also the factor that, again, there is a sizable nomadic or semi-nomadic population between these sedentary centers in the south and the north. Uh, so the people living between these sedentary societies are also part of that interplay. Um, another factor that I kind of hinted at earlier is that the reason we may not have uh, earlier uh, sites to study for this region is due to the environment. Um, of course, as the uh, forests are expanding uh, and the ones um, in the the con itself, they are getting much more regular rainfall. They're a little bit more tropical than the forests in the kind of Aravali, uh, Vindaya uh, region. So it's very possible that just due to the nature of the materials that these people are using for their tools and for their homes or for their um, uh, tents or things like that, um, you know, tropical climates are not the best for preserving uh, things like wood or rope or cloth and things like that. Excuse me. And if they were using bone, that is also something that does not necessarily preserve well. Um, stone artifacts, yes, those could easily show up in the archaeological record. But if they were, you know, well used, uh, you know, those items might not stand out at all for someone just, you know, doing exploratory digging. Uh, so uh, the climate may also be posing a major issue uh, for finding evidence of uh, these Neolithic sites at this time frame. Um, but, uh, again, within the next uh, two or 3,000 years, uh, you're going to see a number of sites come up. I think over well over a dozen, um, you know, fairly sizable sedentary um, locations will appear in the archaeological record. And these sites will be growing different items than you will find to the north, or at least um, a different, I guess, uh, ratio of uh, things that they're growing to the north. Uh, southern India is a bit more conducive to growing uh, rice and millet rather than grains. Um, so that is another thing to keep in mind. Also, uh, peppers and things like that are uh, a little bit more suited to the uh, southern uh, parts of India, at least in the time frames we're going to be talking about, um, as well as uh, other things. I believe um, I believe ginger also comes from this region, and cumin initially. Now, those are exported a little bit further north they're grown in that region too but again a lot of the spices that india is famous for um were initially uh grown and domesticated in southern india and then of course um that's not even to mention the uh 
metal wealth that you get out of the Dakan. I mentioned uh, minerals and stones and things like that that are, you know, uh, prized in the region. But uh, also there are, you know, a lot of um, good sources of things like iron and copper uh, that make the region important as well. But again, at our time frame, 8,000 to 6,000, uh, I'm willing to bet that the Khan is slightly less well populated than the north just due to people having to adjust to uh, the climate change uh, that's happened with since the end of the Younger Dryas. Um, and they're a little bit... Uh, and while because there are less people, there's less pressure to kind of supplement your food sources. You're still living, you know, that good old-fashioned hunter-gatherer lifestyle. You're, you know, only having a child born every two to four years. Um, your population's growing a little slower, and you know you're not having to kind of um, supplement again that that food source. Uh, there's not a pressure to do so, so they're not having to. Uh, experiment uh, with their uh, livelihoods, for lack of a better term. And they also have, you know, a lot of goods that you could not find to the north, so they're probably very valued trading partners um, when that sort of thing happens. Uh, and also, again, going through that southern route or through the, the Aravalli Hills directly maybe a little bit easier. Um, Again, you can go north around the Aravalli Hills, but uh, that's probably a longer journey. It's safer, uh, but it, it you know it could take time. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Though again, a long distance trade from one group is probably not likely. Again, you're probably daisy chaining uh, from one group. You you go one valley over. And then the other group goes two uh, forests up, and then you, you know, so on and so forth. You're not having a single individual going, you know, uh, 500 or 1,000 miles, something like that. Um, so, again, trade's probably low scale, but it is probably happening, um, you know, at a decent uh, interval, I would imagine. Um yeah, so I think that's kind of a good place to stop. Again, I, I expected there to be a little bit more sites to talk about, but when I actually sat down and looked at the time frame, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these uh, sites were actually uh, dated to. There's nothing really in southern India that stands out, at least in the large scale. Um, but what I think I'm going to do is, I think I'm going to go ahead and call the episode now. It's already 35 minutes. Um, I hope people weren't too bored with the etymology stuff. Most people seem to enjoy it. Um, I highly recommend looking at a map. <laughs> you, you could probably get a little bit more out of that for, uh, from this episode. Um, but yeah, so this is always just something to keep in mind when we return to this region. Uh, now, next week, um, I'll talk about Sri Lanka and uh, those uh, islands to the uh, west of the subcontinent. And then we'll move up the eastern Ghats back towards the Ganges River, and then we'll go from there. Um, but yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope it wasn't too, uh, too bad in terms of um, 
uh, geographic descriptions. I hope it did a good job of explaining everything. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can reach me via direct message on Twitter. Uh, you can, of course, comment on any YouTube video you like. Uh, I've got three more set to go up this week. Uh, we are getting closer and closer to kind of catching up. Um, so if you are listening on YouTube, thank you. Uh, if you are listening on any other platform, thank you as well. Uh, please feel free to like, subscribe, rate, all that good stuff uh, on any platform you use it will really help out the show so uh, i'd like to thank you all again for listening and i hope you have a good rest of your day and week thank you goodbye